where I'm going by the end, and I have to say this now because I'm trying to write my sermon still in my head, uh, and I don't want to forget it, and I'll probably butcher it because I haven't written it down, um, but where I'm going is I want you to see that whatever church you are lacking today would not be an upgrade from where you currently stand in Christ. Okay, What you have or what you lack today, what you might be thinking this season, I don't have this person or I don't have that thing or there's longing in my heart. What I want you to know is that in Christ, those are no upgrades, whatever it is you think you lack. And children, whatever you think you're going to get tomorrow is actually a downgrade to what you already have in Christ. If, I, if there's any application, I want you to hear that. What I think Matthew's going to show us is that we have something that no thing on earth can be an upgrade from, which means if we are lacking any of those things that we want today or tomorrow, all of those things are downgrades compared to what Jesus has already done. Maybe I'll get there by the end, but I've at least said it at the outset. We had a discussion at the Davidsons Wednesday night after, uh, after our gathering, and it resulted in my confession that I was one of those kids. Christmas Day, open a gift, and it's clothes. Well, what's the point of my list? You're going to give me clothes. You'd be right to call it arrogance, pride, bratty, outright awful. Parents, any of your kids do that? Don't point at them. Um, I know what's best for me. I know the gifts I need. Bow down to what I want. That's what I make a list for. We don't really grow out of that, though, do we? We just say it in more socially acceptable ways. I can't believe in a God who would X, Y, Z. I won't gather with the Lord's people. The lake is where I meet God. Never mind what he said. I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm deconstructing. I'm rejecting all historical, national, religious meta-narratives. In a million ways, we are adults who live in a culture that orbit around the authority of self. But Christianity, however, proclaims that this creation actually orbits around God and his purposes. You and I aren't at the center, and our lists aren't as good or as compelling as we might think that they are. So question, do you love God because he gives you what you want, or do you love God because he acts in all his purposes and plans to give you what he wants? Huge difference. I'll ask it again. Do you love God because he gives you what you want? Or do you love God because he acts in all his purposes and his plans to give you what he wants? You see the title of the sermon this morning? God gives what he wants. And here's what Matthew is showing. We finally arrived at the birth of Christ in our birth narrative series. Just a review of where we've been. We looked at the promised pattern from Psalm 8, where David is realizing that he is a type of the Genesis 3.15 offspring that was promised as he defeated Goliath. We looked at the Abrahamic promise through Romans 4. 
We looked at the shock of God's purposes and bringing the line of promise through the deceiver, Jacob. We looked at God raising the promised line from the dead in Ruth. We saw last week that Matthew's genealogy demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises and patterns in the Old Testament. And how I preached that last week is we saw who was arriving, God's appointed ruler. But today we're going to look at why he came. And I want you to see how the two are connected. By knowing who has come, the end of Matthew's gospel shows us who rules the world. That was what I argued last week. The one in control is the one who is to be born. Matthew tells us from a historical perspective, God's ruler came into the world. By the end of his gospel, that ruler was risen from the grave and told us all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. He is the king. He reigns today. But now by seeing why he has come... The way this relates is Matthew's telling us not only is this why Jesus came, Jesus succeeded in giving us what God wanted. That is what we're looking at is something Jesus has succeeded in accomplishing. So I ask it again. Do you love God because he gives you what you want? Or do you love God because he acts in all his purposes and his plans to give you what he wants? We reason rightly that uh, an authoritarian, abusive parent uh, is harmful. But we also reason rightly that flattering, pandering, give a child whatever they want is harmful. And so, too, we should recognize professing that God is good means that in all of his higher ways above us, what he wants is infinitely superior than what we could want for ourselves, right? It is good news that God does not exist to give you and me what I want. He is existing and accomplishing and purposing all that he wants. Now, as we approach this text, I want to give a caution. You look down with me at verse 18. It says, now the birth of Christ took place in this way. And when Matthew uses that word, this, He wants to bring something out about Christ's birth. And what is the answer? What is the this that he wants to bring out? In order to answer this question, my caution this morning is we need to forget about Luke for a moment. It is good that we synthesize our understandings of the Gospels, but most of what we know about the birth narrative tends to come from Luke. We need to remember that Matthew is his own individual writer, and I think everything he says complements what Luke says. But Matthew has a particular this he wants to answer. He wants to bring something out. His details matter to his points as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we want to examine this scene in Matthew to get Matthew's point. And what caught my attention as I studied this passage all week long is two things. Number one, Joseph doesn't get much attention, does he? Not in this passage, but just in general. We don't know much about Joseph. But uniquely, Matthew... His whole scene here is about Joseph. I want to draw that to your attention. Joseph is the main figure in this passage. See verse 18? Mary's introduced as his wife. Verse 19, Joseph's character is the subject. Joseph is being described. We're, We're focusing on who Joseph is. Verses 20 to 23, it's Joseph who receives a dream and instruction. And what Matthew wants to draw out by the end in verses 24 to 25 is 
how Joseph responds. It's all about Joseph. Surprisingly, the central character of Matthew's birth narrative is Joseph. Through Joseph, Matthew is going to tell us why Jesus is being born. That is, the birth of Jesus is about what God wants to give to his creation. Now, I wonder if we see how this makes a helpful distinction between true faith and false faith. Okay, what is the difference between true faith and false faith? False faith would be one who is interested in a God who can provide them with everything that they ask. Uh, Some have never thought that what God could want for his creation would be infinitely better than what we want. Our appetites are our highest good. God is seen as a means to that end. We've never stopped to ask the question, What does God, in all his freedom and power, want or work to give creation? But there are some of you this morning who will identify with Joseph, and you are overjoyed that God not only should choose to give, but that God's choice of what he gives flows from the abundance of his wisdom, power, mercy, and plans. And so what we're looking at this morning through Joseph is that Jesus' birth accomplished exactly what God wanted. The arrival of the Son is not only about what God wants. Jesus accomplishes exactly what God wants in coming into the world. So why? Why was Jesus born? Or what did God send his ruler into the world to give us? Let's start by looking at Joseph. I mentioned last week that Matthew is deliberately crafting his gospel to reach Israelites. So reading Matthew feels a lot like reading Genesis. Uh, I pointed out last week that not only it opens with a genealogy, right? The book of Genesis is structured by 10 genealogies. And so Matthew immediately picks up the Genesis pattern and his gospel opens just like it would the book of Genesis. But we also saw that in verse 1 of Matthew's gospel, he, he starts it by saying, in, or this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. It's there in verse 18 as well. Did you see it? It's the same word again. Now the Genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so again, as we approach this passage, what should fill our heads is how God operated in the book of Genesis. And what we're immediately given in this scene is a Genesis-like narrative. This feels like stories that we've heard from the book of Genesis. Let me show you. A man and a wife encounter a birth dilemma, which turns out to be a birth miracle. God gives a vision or a word. The man believes and obeys. In other words, Joseph here, I think, is deliberately presented as a parallel to Abraham. Because you're reading this You're to feel like, hey, this is similar to Abraham. Just as Abraham had to believe God about his promised offspring, it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now this narrative is demonstrating the righteousness of Joseph in trusting God in his instruction about the child to Mary's womb. Joseph here is set up to function like another Abraham. So let's look at the scene, verse 18. Mary and Joseph are betrothed. But betrothed here, really, what what would be accurate to say is they are married. To end a betrothal in the ancient world, you had to seek a certificate of divorce. That is, they had already 
agreed. They had already joined to one another in a covenant. And so in, in today's world, engagement speaks of a future covenant we're going to make and consummate in the same night. But in the ancient world, to be betrothed is to already have the legally binding covenants, and the day of that consummation would be far off. And so Joseph and Mary were legally united, but their, their marriage would not be consummated until a year later. So what's happening at the outset of this scene is that in between the time of their legal union, but before the consummation of that marriage, that night of intimacy, in between those dates, Mary, verse 18, is found to have a child. Well, what does that mean? It means that when she went out shopping, she went to the marketplace, people saw her clothes were a little baggier. When she took a selfie and uploaded it to social media, you could see a baby bump. She and Joseph went to church, and people were going, wait a minute. They haven't fully consummated the marriage yet. She's got a baby. Now, Matthew gives us a detail. It's already, we get at the front end, that Joseph didn't have. He tells us it's of the Holy Spirit. He's going to explain that. But for now, verses 18 and 19 are a shocking situation. They're troubling for Joseph. Joseph's not rejoicing in these verses. Verse 19, everyone's looking at Joseph, thinking, what did you do? But Joseph's looking at Mary, thinking, what did you do? She's been with another man. She's committed adultery. Remember Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So shall you purge the evil from Israel. So the way this scene opens up is date, or Joseph is troubled. It's a troubling revelation. It's a troubling thing to discover that your wife, who you have not been intimate yet with, is pregnant. And we're told that he's just or righteous. That's not good news for Mary. It's why he's seeking the divorce, as it goes on to say. The result of his righteousness is verse 19. He's going to let her go, literally, or divorce, divorce her. Um, but it describes him as not wanting to publicize it, meaning Joseph, while the news of Mary being with child was a seeming incredible scandal, he also was a man of compassion. He didn't want to crush Mary, so he sought to break the marriage privately. Verses 20 to 23 um, introduce Joseph to, during the time where he's trying to wrestle through, what am I going to do? You see it described in there as considering these things. That is, he, in, over a period of time, he's going, what am I going to do about the fact that I have married a woman and she has a baby with another man? What am I to do here? But it was at some point during those days, while he's weighing what he should do, while he was asleep one night... Just like Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 1, Joseph receives a vision from the Lord. And you see the conflict in Joseph through the angel's command. What does the angel tell him? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That is, it's going to, be, it's going to fulfill all righteousness to marry this woman to consummate the marriage. Uh, there is no injustice in marrying her. She's done nothing wrong. And so the angel of the Lord commands Joseph to consummate the marriage. Don't divorce. Why? And he explains. For that which is conceived in her 
is from the Holy Spirit. Two, two implications. Negatively, Joseph, there's no scandal here. There's no scandal in Mary. Positively, this is an act of God. You are back in Genesis. The God who provides miraculous offspring is acting again in Mary's womb. Why was Seth born to Eve after Cain had killed Abel? Because the Lord gave her another offspring. Why was Isaac born when Abraham and Sarah were nearly 100 years old? Because the Lord gave them another offspring. Why was Jacob the promised offspring, though he was a deceiver in the second born? Because of the Lord. How in the world was Ruth redeemed to give birth to Obed that would result in the historic King David? Because in such historic times as dark as judges, God preserved Israel's promised line. Why did it only take a youth to defeat Goliath? Because of God. Why is your betrothed wife pregnant, Joseph? God acted. So he's saying, this is from God. That which is in her womb is not from some earthly man. There is no scandal here. God is working. God is doing something. God acted. What is taking place in Mary's womb is the same sort of work throughout the Old Testament. Matthew is saying that as with Abraham and Sarah, now Joseph and Mary. These are God's plans. These are God's purposes. This is about what God intends to do, Joseph. So verse 21, Joseph told, name the child Jesus. Which just means God saves or Yahweh saves. Verse 22, he's told that this is a fulfillment of what God promised from the book of Isaiah. Pay attention to this. I'm going to read a passage from Genesis 21. This is about um, the birth of Isaac. And listen to the language used in Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time which God had spoken to him. God said he'd do it. God said he'd do it. God said he'd do it. What does our verse say? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. This is Old Testament history continuing on. The God who promised, the God who delivered, the God who raised up child after child after child. Joseph, it's happening again. This is from the Lord. As he said he would. This is no ordinary conception. God has acted to do something very unique. And like Abraham, notice Joseph's response. In verses 24 to 25, Joseph believes and obeys. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did, not, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she'd given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. In other words, if you're an Israelite, the intended audience of this gospel, all these parallels between Joseph and Abraham are, are connecting for you. And Matthew's telling us the birth of Jesus is about what God wants to do for the world. Now, I want to stop and think for a moment about how bored we've become with that. Even as I describe this to you, I feel the need to make it prettier. I feel the need to do more to impress you. 
I want to read a little bit from a devotion my family read this uh, past Friday. It's an Advent devotion, and it, and it just was so fitting um, that I wanted to read it. He said, You can read every tale ever written, every mystery thriller, every ghost story, and I'm going to add every sports underdog journey, and you'll never find anything so shocking, so strange, so weird and spellbinding as the story of the incarnation of the Son of God. In other words, what you just read far outweirds or outamazes any of these other created stories. How often have I had to repent and say, God, I'm sorry that the stories men have made up stir my emotions, my awe and wonder and admiration and joy more than your own true story. Perhaps the galactic movie thrillers of our day can do at least one good for us. They can humble us and bring us to repentance by showing us we really are capable of the wonder and awe and amazement that we seldom feel when we contemplate the eternal God and the cosmic glory of Christ and a real living contact between them and us in Jesus of Nazareth. You think about how much more amazing and real what we just read was, but I'm already ready to think about something else. I'm already ready to get lunch. I'm already ready to need more. But if it were Star Wars, if it were Zelda, if it were a football game or a, a presidential debate, we'd sit for hours. But this, we've heard it before. Let us not forget, God acted in human history to place himself in a human body to accomplish what he wants for his creation. That is not something to yawn at or move over quickly. Friends, you live in a world where God has acted. This is the backbone of human history. This is the center of God's affections. God has chosen to put his son in Mary's womb. We could sit here forever. So let's look at Isaiah's prophecy, verses 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And you see Matthew, he, those parenthetical remarks there, Matthew wants you to catch what that means. It means God with us. So Joseph's told that what he is now in the middle of is the unfolding of a historic promise from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. The book of Isaiah opens with Israel's divided kingdom. The southern nation of Judah is being threatened by the northern tribes of Israel. And Judah, the southern, king, or the southern kingdom, uh, their king Ahaz is terrified. He's a coward, and he doesn't trust the Lord. The prophet Isaiah comes to Ahaz in chapter 7, and he says, Ask the Lord for a sign. The Lord is willing to secure you and to show you he will secure you. Ahaz, in his presumption, refuses. Nevertheless, the Lord speaks. And what does he speak? He, he speaks this prophecy in verse 14 of Isaiah 7. 
The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In other words, 700 years before Joseph existed, this promise was made to King Ahaz. And that child that was born, I think, within Ahaz's time was a promise that God would topple Judah's enemies. The child's birth was a sign that the tyrants that threatened Ahaz would be defeated. And so what Matthew is saying is that in both pattern and prophecy, what God promised to come to pass through the prophet Isaiah is now happening in Mary's womb. What does God do before he acts? He promises. Human history, the Old Testament is filled with promise after promise after promise. And Matthew is saying, now, come to pass. But we need to see the relationship of Ahaz's need to our need. Ahaz's biggest problem was a tyrant. But it wasn't the tyrant of the king of Israel or Syria. It was the tyrant of his own sin and unbelief in God's promises. It's why the Lord tells him, if you're not firm in faith, you're not going to be firm at all. In other words, Matthew's appeal here to this child, this tyrant-toppling child, is not about conquering geopolitical rulers. And so I asked this morning, what tyranny do you fear? Because there's a tyranny that Christ came to topple. The child Mary is carrying is going to be a king who accomplishes the defeat of the tyrant over God's people. Who is that captor? Who is our captor? Who has you held captive? And you see it in verse 21? You shall call his name Jesus. In other words, you're going to put a banner on his head that says God saves And what will Jesus save us from? For he will save his people from their sins. What is God doing in sending his son in the world, born of a virgin? God is toppling the tyrant of our sin and rebellion. The incarnation came to topple our self-appointed kingship that still emerges in our day-to-day interactions with one another and the ways that we live, the choices that we make. The tyrant that enslaves us is our rebellion against our creator. We yawn, we suppress, we ignore the reality of God, and we try to persuade ourselves this is our creation. And other people are a means to our ends rather than mirrors that point us back to our creator who made us. Christ is born into the world to deal righteously with the judgment that looms over us. The death that haunts all of us, the lies that plague us, that flow from our hearts, the yawning about God that comes so naturally to us. What Matthew is saying is that Joseph, the child in Mary's womb, is going to topple the empire built by human rebellion. And that is only good news to us this morning, friends, if you see your sin as a tyrant. Do you see the flesh in you that you want to see crucified? Do you see the slavery that holds you over, even in a free country? D.A. Carson said it this way. 
If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he'd have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. Do you see that God is good this morning? Because he prioritizes freeing you from your sin more than you and I do. Do you see the great gospel of God? God loves that which is supremely excellent in such a way that he brings his people to what is most excellent. He doesn't let you settle for lesser things like an economist or an entertainer or a politician, as good as those things are. God is good because he wants what he wants for his people, not what I want for me, not what you want for you. So I wonder if you want God to be not you. I wonder if you want God to be not you. I wonder if you're persuaded this morning that if something outside of you could change, freedom would come, blessing would come, flourishing would come. The right money, the right spouse, the right president, the right job, the right people, the right church, the same list I always go over when I ramble like this. I wonder if there's anything in you that desires to see the tyrant self and sin lose its sway over you. Psalm 103 proclaims that Yahweh forgives all our iniquity. Matthew says God has brought the birth of Christ about to make that a reality. To once for all cut your sin off from you. So friends, do you know there's nothing on earth that can redeem you? There's nothing created that can redeem you? No creature, no present. Do you want freedom from sin? Matthew says, Joseph, Mary's child, is a tyrant crusher. God has sent him into the world to save you and me from our sin. But why? Why is that, why is that what God's giving to us? Well, let's look at the Messiah's names. I asked you at the beginning, do you love God because you believe he gives you what you want or because he acts in all his purposes and plans to give you what he wants? If we're honest with ourselves, if God, if I, I could ask him right now immediately for things, I think if you could ask him right now immediately for things, we'd put a whole host of other things before freedom from sin because we do not often value what freedom from sin brings. What does freedom from sin bring? What is God doing in sending Jesus into the world, born of a virgin, toppling the tyrant of sin? What's he doing? And Matthew answers this by drawing our attention to what Jesus is going to be called. We've already seen it twice. Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he's going to save his people from their sin. What does Matthew do? Verse 25, he calls his name Jesus. In other words, he's going to save his people from their sin. But why does that matter? Because of the second name, verse 23, 
they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's not just you, Joseph, who's going to call him Emmanuel. It's not just you, Mary, who's going to call him Emmanuel. It's they. It's a plurality of people from every tribe and every tongue. And they are going to be able to say, because of this son, God is with us. What is God doing in bringing this child through Mary's womb? God is acting in human history to give you himself. That's what Christmas is about. Son was born so that you'd get God. Son was born so that you'd return to your maker. Romans 5.1 Therefore, in Christ, we have peace with God. What makes Christmas wonderful It's the celebration of the slaying of the tyrant of sin so that we could have God with us. This happens in at least three ways. Number one, Jesus is God in flesh. How is he God with us? Jesus is God. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, um, uh, Philippians 2, on and on. Number two, as I mentioned already, in the Son, Jesus has reconciled us to our Creator. There now stands no more enmity between us and God. There is no righteous judgment looming over us now. We have peace with God because we've been executed in the Son so that we might stand where the Son stands. But thirdly, Jesus also inaugurates the the prophecy from Joel, the, the outpouring of the Spirit we see at Pentecost so that now the Holy Spirit dwells in each and every one of God's people. God is with us in that Jesus is God in flesh. Number two, Jesus has reconciled man and God. Number three, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as a result of the Son's work, now indwells God's people. But I want you to notice as we close is that not only is Jesus God with us the opening of Matthew's gospel, it's actually the final verse of the gospel, right? The gospel opens, Matthew, you're going to call his name, they're going to call him Emmanuel. In other words, he's going to have stamped on his head by the people, this is God with us. How does the last verse of Matthew end? Uh, It should be at the top of your sermon handouts, Matthew 28, verse 20. Maybe, might not be. Is it just 18? I might have just verse 18. How does uh, the the gospel of Matthew end, verse 28, or verse 20 of chapter 28? Jesus says, behold, I am with you to the end of the ages. Chapter 1, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 28, behold, I am with you to the end of the ages. In other words... Jesus does it. What Matthew 28 is saying is that the child born in Matthew 20 or Matthew 1, God with us, did it. He accomplished God with us. Matthew's gospel is not about how Jesus failed to bring the kingdom because of what Israel did. Matthew's gospel is a story about the success of God's ruler, accomplishing an age in which God and man are now reconciled again. In other words, if the genealogy shows us God's ruler has come and in fact reigns, the birth story tells us Jesus came to give us God and he did not fail at it. So why was Jesus born? Because God is giving you what he wants to give, himself. 
back to that application I wanted to say at the beginning. This means right now, everything you think you need to have a good Christmas season is a downgrade from the reality of what you have in Jesus. I'm not saying don't want those things, but I'm saying see the exalted status you now share because of your King Church. Who are we as we gather? Who are we as we go into the world? We are God with us now. Jesus is with his people. Jesus has accomplished it. What is definitive about you as a result of Christ? God is with you. I don't mean suck it up. I don't mean get over what grieves you. I mean see you stand supremely higher than what anything else you could have could add to you. Which means anything you could get tomorrow or anything you could wish for tomorrow is going to be supremely less than what you already have. I don't want you to hate those things. I don't want you to feel bad about having or enjoying those things. I just want us to see, church, Jesus has done it. Christ rules. He's with his people. We are full. The psalmist says, you put more joy in my heart than they have when their their grain and wine abound. Psalm 16 In God's presence is fullness of joy and treasures forevermore. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And what do I desire besides you? My heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you these things, that my joy might be in you, that you that weigh us this season, rightfully so. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is right. This creation is hard to walk through. But dear friends, Jesus has accomplished God with us. It is a reality today. It is something you walk in now. You are no longer cut off from the God who made you. He has won peace despite our sin. He took the wrath that we deserved And he now smiles upon you. Which means if you have God on your side, what is death going to do? Amen. Jesus was already killed. He rose. Which means if God is with you, death can't do anything definitive to you. There's nothing you can run into. There's nothing you can lack today that cannot be outmatched and multiplied by the fact that you now stand with God because of Christ. So I simply want to say, why did Jesus come? Why do we celebrate the birth of Christ? Because he has accomplished God's purposes to give you himself. Let that be what fills us this Christmas Eve. Let's pray.